so if you uh, found this last summer a little um, challenging in the book of Ecclesiastes, maybe it was a little esoteric for you, uh, welcome to the book of Colossians. It is very easy to understand down to earth, and uh, we're going to start this morning uh, to take a look at this, this wonderful letter in the New Testament that we'll be spending our fall in. Uh, what I'm going to do is try to set the context for what's happening in Colossae, uh, and then we'll take a look at just these eight verses here this morning as, as we start. Just a, a side note, it's very fun for me uh, to be able to teach today after 44 years of church life. Uh, I never dreamed that I would have the privilege to do that for so many years. Uh, this summer, Don and I celebrated 50 years of marriage, and... Um, <laughs> Wow, you act surprised that we made it that long. But, you know, to be honest, when you're young, you get married, you think, I, I'm, I'm not going to be married 50 years. It's just, this is a good year. And uh, you, you can't envision that. And same thing for church life, but in God's grace, here we are. So uh, it's a privilege. So let me, let me start just by asking a question. Um, what do you think it was like to be a part of a church in Colossae uh, 2,000 years ago? I think sometimes we read the New Testament and we can, it can almost seem like these churches weren't real. Like we're reading a novel about something that's not real. And I want to remind us this morning as I try to set the context, this is very, very real. You have in your lap a Bible and you have it opened hopefully to Colossians and you think, well, this is an ancient text. It's not as old as the Old Testament, but it's at least 2,000 years old roughly. And it can seem not real, but I want to remind you that this ancient text was not always ancient. There was a time it was incredibly fresh, and the people of Colossae got this letter from the Apostle Paul and thought, wow, this is really something. Well, maybe a fun way to think about what it was like to be a Christian in the Church of Colossae in the first century is to kind of do a little contrast with what is it like to be a Christian in Santa Barbara Community Church in 2023. You came this morning in an air-conditioned car, maybe heated because it's kind of cold outside today. Um, The more modern of us came in electric cars because gas is so yesterday. You chose between the 9 and the 11 o'clock service based on what was going on in your life. Uh, We enjoy a very comfortable building. The lights are on a rheostat. They can go down when we're supposed to worship more seriously. And then when it's announcement time, they come up. Uh, We have air conditioning, and maybe some of you right down here in the center section can feel it a little bit. That's very rough. It's very hard on us to to put up with that. As it gets colder, we'll turn on the heat. We have Bibles. I'm going to guess there are at least a dozen translations in this room this morning. Old Testament, New Testament. Some of you have a device that you're reading your Bible on. We have a band with a sound system that I thought was phenomenal this morning. Thank you, guys. Just sounds so good. Electricity, all the rest. We even have gluten-free communion crackers. That's how progressive we are. Every so often, like a couple of weeks ago, which I thought was an incredible day, we have bounce houses for our kids and catered Mexican food and a big party here. So much fun. We can give money electronically. Uh, We get coffee. I'm kind of a coffee snob, and I I think our coffee is pretty good. And you you can bring it inside. So if you're new or visiting, bring it in. It's free. We have hats, Santa Barbara Community Church hats now. They're not free. (laughs) Don't take one. They're $10, but I think that's kind of a good deal. Uh, 
We have clean restrooms with water on tap that comes out and you can wash your hands. We have a wonderful kids program, youth program. If you have COVID, you can stay home and watch the service on TV. And I would like to say to some of you who are watching it right now, if you have COVID, great, stay home. But if you don't, come to church, okay? <laughs> Super important. <clears throat> I like that. You guys are awake. This is good. Uh, if you get to get bored during the sermon, I, I'm going to try and go quickly here this morning, but if you get a little bored, you can take your device and you can look and you can see what the score of the game is. I see people doing that all the time. Shame on you, okay? <laughs> but if you want to, go ahead. We have a slick study guide for Colossians. It even has color. And then we have home groups with dessert. The church in Colossae, get this, had none of this. Not one thing that I just mentioned that they have. And they would be shocked at the scope of our church life together. The church in Colossae had been in existence about five years when they got this letter. They are young. They are finding their way. They are a minority group in a majority culture. They're out of step with their culture by their faith with Christ. As far as we know, the Apostle Paul never visited Colossae. Uh, He's incarcerated in Rome, most likely, when he writes this letter. It's his co-worker, his friend, his buddy, Epaphras, who founded the church in Colossae and then brought this news of how they were doing to Paul. He writes the letter. Epaphras brings it back. So where is Colossae? It's in modern-day Turkey. If you've been to Ephesus on a, a tourist time, it's about 100 miles inland from Ephesus. It's in the Lycus Valley. It is a beautiful, beautiful river valley, uh, present-day Turkey, 11 miles from uh, Laodicea, about 10 miles from Heropolis. Uh, It's in the center of of a lot of stuff that's going on in the New Testament. Uh, I was there some years ago. I have to tell you, after being in Ephesus, that is such a magnificent um, city that's archaeologically been preserved, I got to Colossae, and uh, it's just it's several acres. It's just a giant mound. It, I mean, it's bigger than this ceiling, big mound, four or five acres or something like that, and a sign that's about this big that says Colossi. Very disappointing. But I met a, a young woman from Westmont who had just been there this summer, and she said they're actually beginning to uh, do an archaeological dig there. It'll take 10 or 15 years probably. It takes a long time to uh, excavate that city and, and see what's under that big that big bound of dirt. So maybe we have some exciting things to look forward to. Paul is writing for two reasons. To give assurance to these young Christians and to give them spiritual confidence that in fact they are saved. And we're going to see that in our passage here this morning. And at the same time to combat heresy that was creeping into the church. Chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. A few verses later in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now in the weeks ahead, our teachers will further explain this heresy, but just in brief, it was, it's a little difficult to figure out exactly, but it was some sort of a toxic brew of Jewish legalism, probably the veneration or the worship of angels, Greek philosophy, and early Gnosticism, one of the the heresies that spread for the second and third century in the church. And it's probably an early version of that. So young churches are very, very susceptible to being taken in by heresy. A little later in the teaching, I'm going to talk about the global south. The global south is Asia, 
Africa, and Latin America. And um, the gospel is just exploding in the global south. And, and people are becoming Christians in droves. We'll, we'll mention that in the morning. But all, everybody who's been there says that the gospel is a, a mile wide and an inch deep and highly susceptible to false teaching and heresy. Uh, and so we probably have a similar situation here uh, in Colossae where these young Christians, they don't have all the, the resources that we have, they don't have the history, and they're very susceptible, and so Paul writes to instruct them. So with that introduction, let's stand and read the Lord's Word, Colossians chapter 1, the first eight verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and the love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven, that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel, that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. You learn it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who has also told us of your love in the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Keep your Bibles open as you sit down and we'll work our way through this passage. In an effort to reassure these young believers... And Paul answers the question, how do you know that you're a Christian? And maybe you've asked that question. And there's, there's many, many ways to answer that question, and I'm not going to try and do all of them this morning, but rather just focus on these verses where in our passage, Paul asks, answers that question, reminding them that they have faith, love, and hope. And these are the marks of true faith. These three distinguishing marks of true faith show up a lot in the New Testament. Sometimes it's uh, faith, love, and hope, and sometimes it's uh, faith, hope, and love. But they're all over. I could, I'd read scores of passages that would have these three ingredients together. And they almost become shorthand or a synonym for genuine or real Christianity. 1 Thessalonians 1.3, Paul says, We continually remember our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus. That's just one example. We, see, we can see many of these. So Paul uses these three key virtues of the Christian life to give assurance to the believers at Colossae. So let's take a look at the first one here. Uh, faith. Christianity was new. It came into a cultural moment with lots and lots and lots of religious options. So it would be logical to ask, what is faith? Faith in what? What kind of faith? And as we know, faith can be one of those meaningless words in our culture. Uh, At one point, Mark Twain cynically said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Well, that's not New Testament faith. But we hear phrases like, especially in the media, the, the faith community. And it's almost a generic umbrella term that refers to anybody who believes anything. We hear people referred to as a person of faith. Uh, At the tennis club where I play tennis, I've I've heard people refer to me and some of the other believers as, oh, they're people of faith, which is really kind of a a vague term, and it doesn't mean a whole lot, and it's sometimes hard for the non-Christian world to understand. 
So did you watch the U.S. Open? I hope so. You should. Oh, it was so great. Coco Goff, go Coco. 19 years old, this winsome, wonderful, very, very smart, obviously a great player, won it. And she's now the champion for the U.S. Open. And it was, it was quite a match. It was really something. And um, at the end of it, you know, they always lay down because they're exhausted. And then she stands up and dances around. And, uh, before the award ceremony, where she was handed at 19 years old a $3 million check, if you can believe it, and the trophy and all the rest, Coco Goff went over to her chair. And she got down on her knees in front of this full stadium and put her hands together and prayed. And it's so fascinating to see what the ESPN um, commentators said. They, I, I watched it, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. They just couldn't believe that this person, who is very vocal about her faith in Jesus Christ, uh, went over and prayed. And they said, oh, Coco went over to her chair to collect her thoughts. <laughs> no, she was not collecting her thoughts. She was praying to God. She was praying to Jesus Christ. Verse 4 tells us plainly that the Colossians had faith, but it wasn't just some faith. It was faith in Christ. This is not a vague faith, but whether it, rather a faith in a concrete historical person, Jesus Christ. Twice in our passage, Paul refers to their faith in the gospel. The gospel is just a word that means good news, very common word. Uh, and it, but in use the way Paul uses and the way it's used in the New Testament, it's the good news that God has solved the problem of our sin through Jesus. Now listen here, or just take a look here, to other phrases that modify gospel. The gospel of grace. The gospel of Christ. The gospel of the glory of Christ. The gospel of peace. The eternal gospel. And here in Colossians, the word of truth. The gospel. Uh, Paul goes on in verses 5 and 6 to describe the word of truth, the gospel, or God's grace in all its truth. So the gospel becomes a synonym for truth. And when the writers of the New Testament, the gospel is based not on a vague spiritual feeling, but rather the affirmation that something is actually true about Jesus. I want you to know that the New Testament is absolutely infused with certainty. It is not a vague book. That doesn't mean it has all the answers to every single question in the world. But when it comes to salvation, it is infused with certainty. We just have to admit that we live in a time when much of our culture, and unfortunately a fair amount of Christians, have given up on the belief that life that moral decisions, especially having to do with sexuality, how we understand other religions can be understood by the truth in the Bible. If you think one religion is as good as another, you have not understood verses 5 and 6. This summer, Don and I were in Slovenia, and uh, we were at Lake Bled, beautiful, beautiful lake, and there's a tourist attraction just a few miles away uh, called Vinter Gorge. Vintgar Gorge is what it is. And um, we, we went there, and you park your car, and you pay some money, and it's about an hour, hour and a half walk on a boardwalk that's 
connected to the, the walls of this narrow gorge, and you just walk. It's, it's really spectacular. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, I've, been, I've done a lot of hiking. I've been in a lot of rivers and a lot of gorges. I've never seen anything quite like it. Crystal clear water, um, really something. And you only go one way. So you, you walk an hour, hour and a half down this boardwalk, and at the end, you get to the end, obviously, and there's a, a very well-signed thing that there's two ways to walk back to your car. One way is relatively short. It's flat. It goes through a village where you can, they said you can get a pastry and a cold adult beverage. It was a hot day, and I thought, That's, that sounds good. And the other way was you had to go up, up over a mountain. It was about twice as long. There was no pastries, no adult beverages. Uh, the views were pretty good, and so uh, you get there. But the point is, whichever way you went back, you got to your car. So it really didn't matter that much. And that's how so many people think about spiritual matters. It doesn't really matter what path you take. You're going to get back. You're kind of wondering what path we took, aren't you? Donna took the long path, and I got the cold beverage. Now, we both took the long path, and we're still sorry about that. In our postmodern world... This is how a lot of people think about all religions. It doesn't really matter what path you take. Everybody ends up in the same place. So what is this postmodern vibe that we live in? In our cultural moment, so many people believe that no truth is absolutely true for everyone. Can I say it again? So many people believe that no truth is absolutely true for everyone. Many, many people that are our friends and our neighbors and that we go to school with have given up on the idea that there's any sort of a meta-narrative. You know what a meta-narrative is? It's an explanation of reality. So most all religions are a meta-narrative. Christians have a meta-narrative, a big picture. We have a, a theology that describes the character of God. We have a uh, cosmology that describes and it gives an account of how the world got here in the universe. We have an anthropology that describes in the Bible our problem of sin and rebellion. And then we have the solution to that in Jesus. And then we have a culmination in eternal life and in heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. That is a meta narrative. By the way, evolutionary Darwinism is also a meta narrative, it has an explanation for many of these things. So there's lots of meta narratives out there. But in our particular cultural moment, so many people have given up on any sort of belief in a meta-narrative. And what's really happening is people are developing their own narratives that are based on their inner subjective feelings, where authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly with one's inner feelings. This is a, a bit of a heady quote, but give it a try. Given that our secular age is subjective and relativistic and therapeutic, the reality of objective transcendent truth that I think Paul is talking about here in Colossians 1 is practically incomprehensible to our neighbors and friends, including many within our churches as well. Unless and until that is challenged clearly and directly, what is said is liable to be understood and filtered through subjectivism and relativism. Well, that's what was happening in the first century church with the heresy coming into Colossae. The first century had a similar, it's not exactly the same, I know that, but a similar problem with truth. 
When Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, the cultural context was a relative disinterest in any sort of doctrine or truth, but rather an emphasis on the utility of having all kinds of gods. And so you had people who would be initiated into all kinds of different cults and would worship all kinds of different gods. And the idea is that there was safety in numbers. The more, the merrier. The more culture you're in, the more gods you had, the better. In Pergamum, archaeologists have uh, unearthed, if you will, the, the temple Demeter, to Demeter, rather. And they also found in that temple, get this, altars to these gods, Hermes, Helos, Zeus, Asclepius, and Heracles. So you have a, a temple to one god, but then you have all these other gods. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is at Mars Hill in Athens, and uh, some of you have been to the Acropolis in Greece. Mars Hill is a a little area where these people would argue and, and talk and the philosophers and religious leaders would get together and debate. It's, it's just a couple of hundred yards down from the Acropolis. And, and Paul says in Acts 17 that he was greatly distressed to see a city full of idols. And then he goes on <clears throat> to say, men of Athens, I see that you're really religious. For I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, in other words, all these altars and idols, and I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. They were covering all their bases. Then he talked to these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers about the gospel and Jesus and the resurrection. It didn't go well, but he tried. Christians were the religious party poopers of the first century and their denial of other gods. So Colossians, Paul says, how do you know you're a Christian? Because you have faith. Not some sort of vague, generic faith, but faith in a real historical person, Jesus. Well, secondly, what about love? And again, love is one of those words that is, in our culture, often over-sentimentalized, overused. It can begin to lack any real meaning. I love my shampoo. I love my car, I love my new tennis racket, I love my dog. Doesn't mean a whole lot. Uh, I went earlier uh, this summer to a concert at the Libero. Uh, it was a Beatles cover band. It was called Yesterday. Really cool. They wore Beatles wigs and um, concerts are so much. Concerts are a microcosm of culture, you know? I also, earlier in the summer, uh, Don and I went to uh, two country western concerts. I'd never been to a country western concert. And people actually wear cowboy boots and cowboy hats. I was shocked. <laughs> Pretty good concerts, but I thought, are you kidding me? This is Santa Barbara. Well, you know, this is not Wyoming. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, very fun. But back to the Beatles. So the, the Beatles, it was really fun. This is my music. This is what I grew up in as a, as a young guy. But they did one of the songs. I, it's really fun to kind of analyze it. All you need is love. Yeah, all you need is love. Love is all you need. Love is all you need. Love is all you need. It's kind of the whole song. There's almost no lyrics. And I thought, come on, McCartney, come on, Lenny, you could, you're so good. You could have done better on that song. But it's one of their big songs. It doesn't really say anything. Well, love, as it is being used here in our passage does not refer to a special way of feeling, but rather a settled way of acting towards our fellow believers that finds its motivation in the gospel. Now, I think there's a lot of cute kids here in our church, and I love the kids, and I've, I've 
mentioned this before to some of you, the older I get, the more I like the kids and the less I like you. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, just, I just love the kids. But Don and I have five grandchildren that we really, really love, and we feel very special towards them. And there's a reason. We are connected to them biologically. We, our, our two daughters gave birth. They did, they did all this work to bring these kids in. I mean, their husbands helped a little, but not much. Uh, but we, we have this, this incredible relationship and feeling and, and sense of oneness with them because they're family. If we are Christians, we are connected to each other in a unique family, and the glue is Jesus. I think I have this right. Memory fails as you get older, but I was trying to think, what countries have I been in? I don't mean as a tourist, but where I've had the privilege to teach or preach the gospel and be in other churches. Croatia, Bosnia, Nicaragua, Honduras, Mexico, Turkey, Israel, and Jordan. In each of those situations, the language, the culture, the style was really, really different. I I could tell a lot of funny stories that I've experienced. But every time in all those churches, I had a unique experience. These are my people. These are my people. I don't care how strange the cultural differences were, and there were a lot of them. These are my people because we have a common faith in Jesus. I was in a, a prayer meeting with a group of pastors, about 15 pastors in Amman, Jordan. <clears throat> Only two of them could speak a little bit of English, not very well. And uh, they, the, the prayer was all in Arabic, and my Arabic is so weak. And, uh, <clears throat> and every once in a while, one of these guys would stop during this prayer meeting that was quite a lengthy prayer meeting and look at me and say, we're praying about, and just to kind of catch me up, just to be nice. I got to tell you, it was one of the best prayer meetings I've ever been in, because I, I knew that, that these men and these women were, were the people that I was glued to because of Christ. Verse 6, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit. Do you know, this is, um, this is mind-boggling, I've just gotten privy of this in the last couple of weeks. Do you know that there's about 77,000 people every day that become a Christian, that get born again? Now, you say, how do you know that? Well, I don't know that, but there's missiologists who study that. I mean, this is their life. This is what they do. And this is it's kind of a consensus. About 77,000 people every day, mostly in the global south, Again, that's Asia, Africa, Latin America. That, the vast majority of those conversions that are happening in the global south are becoming Christians. And again, the problem is it tends to be a, a mile wide and an inch deep. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world by birth. Christianity is the fastest growing religion in the world by conversion. And it, it's amazing what's happening. Read and Lisa... Uh, many of you remember my brother Reed and, and Lisa, he served as a pastor here for uh, 38 years, have been involved in a ministry um, of going to the global south, primarily Africa, and uh, teaching, kind of bringing seminary 
to the pastors there because there's such a need. There's whole churches that don't even have any leadership at all. They've just been converted, believed in Jesus, and they're just there. He was telling me of one story uh, where he went to a church that was had only been in existence for a very short time. A thousand people, this is in the Tanzania, a thousand people, get this, two pit toilets for a thousand people. Very rural, very rough, very rustic. Don't think about it too long, okay? But, you know, what we enjoy is just so very different. But Paul reassures these believers at Colossae that they really are Christians because they love one another. They have a glue in Jesus. Okay, lastly, hope. Verse five, the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. And once again, hope is one of those words that can be understood much differently than how the Bible is using it here. It's often used in our culture as a synonym for blind optimism. I hope the sun comes out this afternoon. It's been kind of dreary this week. I hope the New York Yankees can win a couple of games before the season's over. I hope the stock market goes up this week. That's not biblical hope. First Peter 1.2 says, In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So you notice the way Paul uses the word hope, it's, it's very concrete and it's very much centered in the resurrection of Christ. This hope produces a new identity in Christ that informs how we respond to the ups and downs of earthly life. So for example... I read recently of a a man who had a uh, horrible, horrible illness, and the doctors said, we can do a surgery that is incredibly risky. There's a good chance you will never wake up from this operation, but if it's successful, you could have many, many years of good life ahead of you. But uh, the choice is yours. Now, this guy was a Christian who had hope in the resurrection, and he said, well, I, so I can have this surgery or I can not and, and die. And he looked at the doctors and he, he had a beautiful statement. He just said, either way I win. Either way I win. That's biblical hope. If you have hope in God in a future, resur- future resurrection, it changes everything. What we believe about God shapes what we believe about everything else. A.W. Tozier Put it this way, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what do you think about God? If you think he's some impersonal force or spiritual energy or divine consciousness and not a person who has invaded our world in Jesus Christ, If you think that way, you'll never have biblical hope. C.S. Lewis has given us a great gift in the Chronicles of Narnia. They're ostensibly written for children, but uh, I tend to think they're more appropriate for adults. Many of you have read them. If you haven't, I would encourage you to do so. It's an allegory of the Christian life in a land called Narnia. In uh, the passage I'm going to read to you as I end here uh, this morning, we have three of the four kids. You have Lucy, Susan, and Peter who are in this scene that I'm going to read. And Edmund is kind of the bad boy. He's not in the scene. He, he, we'll deal with him later. But Narnia is a place where the animals talk. 
and uh, magic things happen. And it's a great picture of the Christian life. And they always talk about Aslan. Aslan is a lion, and Aslan is the Christ figure in these stories. And so Aslan the lion is who they're always kind of thinking about. So as I read this, uh, the children, the three children, uh, Lucy, Susan, and Peter, are with the beavers, and the beavers talk. These are talking beavers. Oh, yes. Tell us about Aslan, said several voices at once. Once again, that strange feeling, like the first signs of spring, like good news, had come over them. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. (laughs) Why, you don't know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? Asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that is why I brought you here. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake about it, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Didn't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. How do you think about God when you think about the hope you have of eternal life? Do you have a sense of God's goodness in the midst of his sovereignty, the fact that he's not always safe? Well, we have a living hope in a God who has rescued us and given this living hope to us because he is good. Don't forget that faith and love and hope that we've looked at in this passage all have an object. Faith is not generic, it is in Christ. Love is not just some song. It's a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And hope of eternal life is because of the resurrection of Jesus. How do you know you're a Christian? Paul reassures these young believers at Colossae that they can know they are believers because they have faith, love, and hope. I'm going to bring you to the Lord's table where we take bread and wine that gives testimony to our faith, our faith in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is giving instructions to the church at Corinth about taking the Lord's Supper, one of the things he says, he says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's biblical hope. 
So if you have this hope in Christ, if you have this faith in Christ, if you have a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, come and take bread and wine that give testimony of the forgiveness that we have for our rebellion and our disobedience and be thankful and have hope. Let's come.